This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Facebook, and check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Let It Rollcast. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to all the other great Pantheon podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. This week, Ted Joya joins Nate to discuss his book, The Birth and Death of the Cool, and Ted's claim that the cool isn't something timeless and undying, but is instead a pretty new phenomenon birthed by jazz titans like Bix Biederbeck and Lester Young, popularized by Elvis Presley and James Dean, and ultimately dying in the 21st century, drowned by a flood of commercial attempts to co-op the cool. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. Time to let it roll. Today, my guest is Ted Joya, author of The Birth and Death of the Cool. Ted, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Nate. And this book, it's its about 10 years old now, and this was one of those books that really cracked my head open like a can opener. It, it's something that I hadn't conceived of, but when I read it, it made perfect sense at the time. And so one of the things I'm interested in is your response to it 10 years later and then how you've think your predictions have come through, but let's start with the premise first. What is the premise of the book, The Birth and Death of the Cool? Well, as is often the case with my books, uh, I don't go into them with my views fully formulated. Uh, I, I actually, I think this is the way you should write books, but I think many people don't do it this way. I, I decide what's, what's right, what's correct, what makes sense in the course of doing my research. And there have been several times in which I've been doing research and I realized that everything I had previously thought about a subject turned out to be wrong. And this was a classic example of it when I wrote my book on the cool. And I'd been planning to do this for many, many years. And I had been collecting information on the history of coolness. You know, what's it like to be cool? Obviously cool music, because basically I'm a music historian. But as we all realize, the concept of cool extends well beyond music, almost every aspect of our culture. Uh, and so my original thought was I was going to write a history of being cool and what it meant from philosophical aspect, cultural, social aspect. And what I found during the course of my research surprised me. In fact, it shocked me. It, it even gave me second thoughts about writing the book because I found as I was researching it, uh, the concept of cool, which I had thought was timeless. I mean, I thought cool always existed. It was always what was in fashion, always what was in style was by definition cool. I found that cool was going out of style. This was, yeah, I'm doing this research 10 years ago. And I found that even the very concept of cool was under attack. And I realized that I could no longer write a history of the cool as some sort of static concept. I had to 
by the history of its rise and fall. So that was basically the premise of the book. Uh, it was originally a history of the cool, but it turned into a notion of how did coolness become central to our culture going back, you know, starting around 1949 when Miles Davis recorded The Birth of the Cool. You really had like a 50-year era in culture, which was almost the age of the cool. And then I had to describe my reasons for thinking that it was going away. And that's the starting place of the book. And define cool for us. Well, cool is a number of attributes. Uh, and I think it's very important to understand what do I mean by cool? What is, what is cool? And cool is a way of dealing with almost every aspect of your life. It's, it's a laid back approach. It tends to be non-confrontational. When faced with, with problems or obstacles, it often has a very lighthearted or relaxed way of dealing with them. It's conciliatory. It, it's, it, it's, it's, it's low key in music. It has a, a very pronounced emotional standpoint. It's not ashamed or afraid of, of showing emotions. Uh, it, in music, it tends to be once again, more relaxed and melodic, much like the lifestyle. And so these are attributes of the cool persona. And this, I mean, I lived through this growing up. When, you know, my, you know, I'm one of the last baby boomers. I came around the end of the baby boom. And it, when I came of age, you didn't deal with things in confrontational ways. You used irony. Sometimes you used sarcasm. Sometimes you used uh, indirect humor. You deflect conflict. Uh, and you can already see why I began to get a sense of these were disappearing in today's culture. We live in a culture today that's hot. It's angry. It's confrontational. Uh, you asked me before about my predictions. You know, I made these predictions in this book 10 years ago, and I, I am sad to say I, I was proven true. This is one instance in which I wish my predictions had not proven true. I mean, I, I, there's a chapter in my book that says, America losing its cool. Now, you got to realize, I wrote this right when Obama had just been elected president. Um, there was a, a general sense of optimism. In, in the whole culture, but I could see these fault lines at just a, a slightly lower step where you could see we were entering an age of anger, confrontation, uh, even violence. I, and we'll talk, we can talk more about this later, but I've come to the conclusion that there are long cycles in American history. Each one lasts about 40, 50 years where we go from hot to cool. Uh, you can look, look at it on a broad base viewpoint, the end of the Civil War, 1865. That was a hot period. I mean, how hot was it? And millions of Americans died. And then you had decades and decades of comparative peace and prosperity, uh, uh, an attempt to, to, to bring the country together again. And then about 40, 50 years later, and that's sort of a cool period. Then 40, 50 years later, you have World War One, the Great Depression, World War II, uh, another very hot, angry period. And then you have the rise of the cool in the late 20th century. And once again, it lasted about 40, 50 years. And, and the sad thing is, if I'm correct, we're in a culture of, of hotness and anger that's going to last at least a couple more decades. Ouch, not something to look forward to. Um, in your preface, you say that certain inherent flaws within the cool worldview were the cause of its inevitable decline. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Well, the cool became too successful. And because it became too successful, it began to get applied in ways it shouldn't be applied. And let me give you a most obvious example. In the 1950s, if I had asked someone, tell me something that's cool, they would almost certainly have mentioned a person. They would say, oh, Marlon Brando or Miles Davis or James Dean or Jack Kerouac. They were cool people, and it was a cool way of acting. Okay, fast forward 50 years later. You ask people, hey, what's cool? they will talk about a piece of merchandise. Well, you know, my smartphone, you know, my, my big screen TV, some gadget. So cool goes from being a personal attribute, like a personal vibe, a virtue, a way you live into a, a selling proposition uh, to push merchandise in a consumer society. So you can see immediately how degraded the concept has become. And that's part of the reason why you started getting a pushback to the cool. 
I mean, since I wrote the book, it's amazing to me how the term hipster has become a word of abuse. That wasn't true 20 years ago. When you heard the word hipster, it still had some overtones of someone who was aligned with the direction of the culture. Now hipster is someone really embedded in consumerist society. They want to buy everything and gentrify your neighborhood. and, 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 And the whole shift here wasn't just, hey, we just like hipsters. It was a degradation in the concept of coolness. And the degradation came about because the term was too successful. Everybody wanted to be cool. Every company wanted to be cool. Uh, every, every retailer wanted to be cool. I mean, so the, it's, it's like the gaps, the gapification of the cool where the concept itself now becomes almost dead or, or creates a backlash, which is what we're living through now. And let's, let's go back to the beginning and, and the, the man you call the progenitor of cool uh, and Correct me if I mispronounce his last name, Bix Beiderbecke, the uh, white jazz trumpet player from the 20s. Why did you pick him as a progenitor of the cool? Well, it's, it's very interesting. One of the things I learned, once again, as I did my research, was that jazz musicians invented the concept of the cool before it went mainstream in society. And this is something that has recurred throughout music history where music is what I call a leading cultural indicator. If you ever talk to economists, they have leading economic indicators. And that's what they look at today to try to predict what the economy is going to be like next year or over the next five years. So they look at things like housing starts, the houses that are going to be built, or announcements of projected earnings growth. So they're always looking at things happening today that will predict the future. Well, that's how economists do it. But in the cultural world, I've realized that music is the cultural indicator. Songs on the radio today will tell you what's going to happen to society tomorrow. And I mean, that's, I mean, you look at the blues songs in the 1920s represented sort of a sexual ethos that later took over the whole country in the 1960s. I mean, this happened again and again in our society. So with the concept of the cool, jazz musicians created it before it became a mainstream social attitude. And the first person to do that was Big Spiderbeck, who once again had sort of this ironic, reflective, laid-back approach to life, but also his music. You know, Big Spiderbeck invented the ballad style in jazz. I mean, literally, he was the first person to try to play pretty music, romantic music, laid-back, melodic music within jazz, because jazz had originally been hot music. It was dance music. It was intense music. It was in your face. And when Bix decided he was going to try to create a more melodic, cooler approach to jazz, some people would have told you that was impossible. They would say, well, you can't, you can't have cool jazz. That's like a paradox. It's like cool fire. And so Big Spiderbeck is our pioneer. It happened starting in the late 1920s. But literally, he was decades ahead of when cool entered the mainstream. So it's fascinating to see He's so far ahead of his time that he's almost out of touch with his own time. And let's hear a little bit of Bix. And this is a a song, normally he played a trumpet or cornet, but this is a piano solo by Bix Spiderette called In a Mist. was Big Spiderbeck injecting cool into what had been a hot music of jazz. Talk a little bit about that piece and why, and why you brought it up for commentary. Well, In a Mist is a fascinating work because uh, as people just heard, it sounds like something outside of the jazz realm. And you got to realize Bix was operating within the jazz world, but in there, he's, it's almost like impressionistic classical music he's playing. And there's also a um, a kind of coolness in its emotional distance. There's a certain aloofness where you, where you sense that there are powerful emotions at the root, at the foundation of the music, but it's diffracted. It's like going into a hall of mirrors where you're never seeing anything straight or direct. Uh, it's an extraordinary work because when Bix composed that and performed it, 
it's safe to say there was nothing else in the entire jazz world that sounded anything like in a mist. And this is the great anomaly of Big Spider Beck is that later those sounds entered the mainstream of jazz. I mean, but you have to go 40, 50 years later, you have Bix, you have Bix, and then you have Bill Evans using those impressionist kind of harmonies. You have Ahmad Jamal in jazz, trying a more cool laid back approach. Obviously what Miles Davis was doing, uh, but it's, it's striking to see Bix doing that decades before those enter the mainstream, even of jazz, not to mention popular culture. And, and one figure that, um, I want to bring up in the context of while we're talking about Bix is, is Bing Crosby, who's, you know, Artie Shaw famously called him the first hip white person in America. And his persona kind of oozed cool. I mean, he was unflappable and, and, but he doesn't, there's something that's not quite cool about him. I mean, talk a little about Bing Crosby and why you didn't pick him as one of the progenitors of the cool. Well, Bing is a very complex individual. And, and it seemed like his private life was nowhere near as, as cool as his uh, external demeanor. Uh, but the interesting thing of, of Bing is that his coolness, I believe, was linked to a technological shift in American music, one that's, that's rarely recognized, but it's in many ways one of the most important shifts in the history of American music. And, 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 and people rarely hear about it. But in the late 1920s, engineers improved the quality of microphones. So previously, if you listen to jazz recordings or popular music recordings from 1924, 1925, it sounds like the singers are shouting at each other. And they have to because that's how you recorded music back then. But all of a sudden, late 1920s, early 1930s, microphones can pick up a more nuanced way of singing. You can actually sing in a whisper or sing in a very conversational tone, like I'm talking to you right now, and people can still hear it in the back row. And that did not happen until they invented microphones capable of doing that. And this allowed American singing to change. And the person who recognized this first was Bing Crosby. I mean, he was the one that really understood, hey, I don't need to sing the way they used to sing. I can sing in a more relaxed, low-key, conversational frame of voice. And American singing completely changed during that period. If you listen, for example, to Louis Armstrong singing in 1927 and compare it to how he sang in 1932, you see Louis was adapting his voice to the new microphone technology. And this is uh, one of these interesting areas in which technology changes musical style and culture. All of a sudden, now you have in the early 1930s, for the first time in history, a low-key way of singing is what everyone wanted to hear. The public was amazed that you could sing like this. And it was one of the rare, and generally in music, the most extroverted and over-the-top artists are the ones who are the most successful. Generally, you've got to be very theatrical and very dramatic. But there was this amazing interlude where what the public wanted was the exact opposite. It was that short period where they wanted something that was more conversational and relaxed. And that was Bing Crosby who came to the forefront and did that. Now, my, to my mind, this was, was not really a part of this broader movement of the cool, though, I'm talking about, because it was more of a technological shift that allowed it. You're still, like I say, 15, 20 years away from Miles Davis doing his birth of the cool. So jazz was still hot music then. In fact, people called jazz hot music. back then. You said, I'm going to hear a hot band tonight. That meant you were hearing a jazz band. So Bing was sort of an outlier. and In a way, he anticipated what was going to happen, uh, but more for technological reasons rather than larger cultural ones. And, and my second question about Bix is, you talk repeatedly about the concept of the cool and, and how in many ways it emerged from African-American culture and as a uh, outgrowing of the African-American need to communicate indirectly because they're an oppressed minority and they can't be openly confrontational, especially, you know, the twenties are a period of the Ku Klux Klan's resurgence and lynching was still very much an active threat, but you picked a white man to be the first, uh, progenitor of cool, but your second Lester Young, the president is African-American. Talk about, that a little bit and why you picked a white guy to be the first and, and why you think he was a direct influence on Lester Young, who's the man you credit with carrying the concept out into the broader culture. Well, a lot of this is, is 
part of the racial complexity that exists at the heart of jazz. And it, it's always something we want to do is to be able to separate out it into black and white. But the interesting reality is that many of the white jazz musicians during the early decades of jazz were attracted to jazz because they perceived themselves also as outsiders to mainstream culture. And, and if you talk to people like Art Pepper or Bill Evans, or I mean, I knew Stan Getz really well. I, I had some conversations with Art Pepper, Chet Baker. These are the, the great white musicians of the middle decades of the 20th century. I can tell you every one of them perceived themselves as an outsider to mainstream society. So they identified with jazz because it was black music. And, and so because of that, I know as critics, we, we love to say, well, this is white, this is black. It's a muddle because in many ways, the white people that are drawn to the art form are not really typical of, of mainstream white culture. So you have a, a very confusing situation where Lester Young is one of the great black musicians of all time, but he crafted his own music drawing largely on white influences. You know, Frank Trumbauer, uh, the white horn player that played with Bix, was Lester's role model. So it's, 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 a complex, it's a complex environment, it's a complex culture. The key thing, though, is these people operated on the fringes of society. Even when jazz music was intensely popular, uh, the jazz musicians felt in ways like outsiders. And so someone like Lester Young developed a whole language of his own. And he would use terms that, that, that almost no one understood, uh, his own little slang. And this goes back to a time-honored African-American approach, which Henry Louis Gates has called signifying. And signifying is when you say something or sing something and there are hidden meanings inside it because for whatever reason, you don't want to have open confrontation. You want to put your words out there in a coded manner. You know, funny, it's just last week I heard about prof these professors, Ivy League, who are finding ways of putting coded messages in music. And they're talking about real cryptography. But the, the funny thing is, you know, Black singers have been doing this for generations. They found that they could put their own coded messages in the music, and they could be very disruptive. Sometimes it was in symbolic ways. Uh, sometimes it was through illusion or attitude. And so Lester Young was one of the great masters of that, and it, and it spread over into his cultural impact. Because like I say, he had a, a language all his own. He was, in fact, the first person to use the word cool in the sense we now use it as something stylish or fashionable. That wasn't always the case. You know, cool for a long time was a negative word. It meant some, you know, it was someone that was cold, someone that was aloof, that was distant. It, it had negative illusions. And Lester played a very important role in flip-flopping that, where all of a sudden what was cool was the, this was the way to go. It was what was fashionable. It's what you wanted to be. And you talk about Lester... And the external aspects, his dress, his, his conversation, but ultimately you make the argument that it was his music that was the real driver of the cool. Well, you absolutely. I mean, I, I mean I'm talking about the, the cultural bric-a-brac there, but Lester Young took this concept that Bix had started, which is how can I be melodic, relaxed, uh, low-key, even romantic, sentimental, and still maintain the heat and intensity of jazz? It's that great paradox. And it's, it's, you know, you could say that no one ever did it better than Lester Young. It's an extraordinary way of playing the horn. And when he started playing saxophone, people would mock him because he wasn't playing with this ballsy, macho, uh, foot-to-the-pedal way of, of saxophony that the other horn players in jazz were doing. It was a much looser way of playing. His, his tone it just sort of floats over the ground rhythm. It was an amazing way of playing the horn, uh, and, and one, like I said, that, that runs counter to the culture of jazz. I mean, jazz is essentially hot music, and so the cool has, has always had to fight its way into jazz because many people feel it's not valid. Oh, we can't play jazz like that. You still hear that today when someone plays very melodically. Oh, you can't play jazz like that. And it's an ingrained attitude. You know, it's funny. I had a professor back in college, Donald Davey, great poet. And he said, every art form has its own temperature. 
Now, what does he mean by that? He said, you know, sculpture is cool. You can almost feel the coldness on the surface of the, the stone. Uh, where uh, other art forms like dance is hot. It, 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 it feeds on intensity. Well, I think jazz is essentially a hot art form. It's in the nature, it's in the DNA of jazz to be hot. So I'm always fascinated with these figures who, who decide I'm going to go against the grain. I'm going to play a different kind of jazz that, that emphasizes its coolness. I'm going to be melodic. I'm even going to be romantic, maybe. And, and if you believe that's an amazing thing to pull off, which I do, a lot of my work as a music critic, especially early in my career, was looking at these people that emphasize the cool. Well, then Lester Young is your hero. He's the patron, patron saint of coolness in jazz and popular music. Let's hear Lester Young and Billie Holiday doing All of Me. All of me Why not take all of me Can't you see I'm no good without you Take my lips And that was Billie Holiday accompanied by the man she called Prez for President Lester Young on saxophone doing all of me. And one thing I found interesting in the book is that you picked Billie Holiday out as a pre-cool singer, not a cool singer. Describe a little bit about what, what is it about Billie Holiday that's not cool versus somebody like Frank Sinatra, who was a cool singer by your definition? Well, these are all things of, of, of gradation. Uh, you know, Billie Holiday came of age in the swing era and, and operated within a context in which people thought uh, jazz ought to be hot. Um, but still, uh, there's, there's definitely an, an, uh, an ingredient of, of, of coolness in her work, although she always tried to remain her at a, at a kind of distance to the crossover audience. Uh, you take someone like a Sinatra or Tony Bennett, you can even argue, are they, are they really jazz singers? I mean, this is a whole uh, argument I've gotten with people is, how do you classify Sinatra? And I guess finally you have to say, well, he's a pop singer, but was very strongly influenced by jazz. Um, but uh, Billie Holiday is, is sort of the reverse of that. She's a jazz singer, but with some understanding of pop, particularly when she was playing with Lester Young. And I'd like to make one more comment about Lester Young, because I think this is essential to understanding him, and I don't think it's widely understood. Uh, and I'll go back. There's a friend of mine, a uh, saxophonist in England, John O'Neill. I used to play in a band with him years ago. And he told me something once, and it was a real eye-opener. He said, Ted, you could make the case that Lester Young is the most influential musician in the history of jazz. And I said, well, how could you say that? How can you say that? I mean, is he really more influential than Miles or John Coltrane or Duke? He said, no, no. You've got to understand the reason why Lester is more influential is because he created a role model for jazz that you could apply outside of jazz. That melodic way of playing jazz, that low-key way of playing jazz, you could incorporate that into a movie score. Down in Brazil, they studied it and used it as an influence on bossa nova singing. If you're involved in classical music, you could use it. You know, for example, John Adams, the classical composer, recently wrote a saxophone concerto. And you can hear the influence of Lester Young on that saxophone concerto. Because Lester Young softened the hot elements in jazz, he created a way of playing jazz you could incorporate on a pop album. You could incorporate on a, on a Frank Sinatra type of album. And so the amazing thing about Lester was not just that he played cool jazz, but he created a style of jazz that could be assimilated outside of the jazz world much more easily than what Duke was doing or Monk or a bunch of these other guys. And so you've got to give Lester Young credit for that. He was a jazz visionary, but one that saw beyond jazz. And particularly those recordings with Billy Holiday, you could almost view those as a blueprint for what pop musicians could do in the future. And the next figure that you, you mentioned, the third figure in your trinity of cool, kind of the man who became the apotheosis of cool, who brought it into the mainstream. And yet at a time when his music was moving from being pop music jazz was you know the dominant pop form in the 30s and and into the 40s but by the 50s when miles davis became a leader of jazz it's becoming an avant-garde art music and yet miles has this outsized cultural impact talk a little bit about miles and why you picked him as as the 
third of your trinity. Well, Miles is really the key figure in all of this, because after he did his recordings, The Birth of the Cool, at the end of the 1940s, all of a sudden you had everywhere in jazz, people were doing cool music. On the West Coast, you had a whole movement known as West Coast Jazz, which was essentially a spinoff of cool jazz. And even though someone like Dave Brubeck, Paul Desmond, uh, Shorty Rogers, uh, Art Pepper, Chet Baker, although they sound different than Miles, they're working within that same aesthetic of coolness. And then you have like the modern jazz quartet, you have what Jerry Mulligan was doing. It seemed everywhere during the 1950s, cool was moving out of the shadows of jazz. And finally, there was a, there was a period in which you could say, is jazz really hot music? Maybe cool is just as valid an aesthetic stance for jazz as the hot. And the only reason that happened, I believe, is because of the powerful role model of Miles Davis. More than anyone, he showed that you could make great jazz out of a cool stance. And even though I say jazz is essentially a hot art form, it's very revealing that when you ask people what's the most important jazz record, a lot of them say Kind of Blue by Miles Davis, which is not a typical jazz album. It's not typical by any means. It's a, it, it, if you understand it in the context of its time, it's a very unusual jazz album. But Miles Davis, through sheer force of personality and musical brilliance and musical conviction, he was able to bring coolness center stage into jazz and also into American culture. Because all of a sudden, the 1950s, cool, the word cool starts showing up everywhere in American culture. People were talking about cool, about movie stars, about beatniks and beat poets and Kerouac and Ginsburg. Uh, and you really have to see Miles Davis as the central figure who did that, someone who created a new way of jazz, but whose influence was so powerful and moved beyond jazz. And it's interesting, you know, you, you bring up uh, the kind of blue as, as you know, a very unusual jazz album, but you frame Miles Davis's 50s in terms of two albums. And the first is The Birth of the Cool, which wasn't even released when it was first recorded in 1949. Um, you know, def definitive ahead of its time sort of statement. But when it is released in the mid 50s, it has this huge impact. And uh, together with his performance at Newport, uh, doing Thelonious Monk's Round Midnight, it lays the groundwork for Miles to sort of, he didn't quite explode into popular culture, but to permeate popular culture, because, I mean, that was a very popular album by jazz standards, I'm talking about Kind of Blue, at, at the end of the 50s. And so something happened in the course of that decade, and it wasn't all Miles. I mean, you mentioned actors, but, and in the book, you talk quite a bit about James Dean, Marlon Brando, Paul Newman, this Steve McQueen, this this new cool school of acting and their approach to acting. What was it about method acting that hits your definition of the cool? Well, you've got to put everything in its context. You had a whole generation that had fought in a war. You know, they had, they had been drafted and sent off to fight World War II. In the 1950s, they're, they're home. They're starting families. Uh, and this is what laid the groundwork for what I call the birth of cool as a larger social movement. They didn't want hand-to-hand you know, -hand conflict. They didn't want open aggression. They wanted to see people that could channel strong feelings, but channel it into something that was not uh, openly violent. And that's what method acting is. Method acting essentially is you channel powerful moments from your past, but use them into play. You, know, you play a role. War gets turned into play. I mean, it, it, it's, it's an extraordinary notion, but it was the right time for this. And it's also the right time for someone like Miles Davis. Uh, so you have a, the, the culture is shifting. The culture is shifting from one of, of open confrontation and, I, and even violence into one of conciliation, of, of indirectness, and of channeling strong emotions into areas where they're not quite so brutal. And... The method acting, the jazz, the beatnik writing, they're all part of the same movement. And let's hear a little bit of Miles Davis. This is his breakthrough performance at Newport doing Thelonious Monk's Round Midnight.
That was Miles Davis and his breakthrough performance at Newport Jazz Festival. And in so many ways, this is a precursor of the mass pop culture version of cool, which would come through rock music in the 60s. I mean, you know, Newport was a small festival compared to something like Woodstock 15 years later, but it has a similar cultural impact. And, and, and Miles has permeated the culture as much as Mick Jagger or Jimi Hendrix or any of the avatars of the rock era. But let's switch into this rock era. And, and one of the insights that you had that really hit me when I, when I first read the book was that when fans are watching somebody like Mick Jagger, it's not like, say, Al Jolson in the teens where he's helping you inhabit the songs. The 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 ride with Mick Jagger is you're pretending you're Mick Jagger and and being and what imagining what it's like to be the cool rock star and enjoying all the fruits of that. Talk about that a little bit and why you think that's a defining aspect of the cool. Well, things have changed in music in ways that we just take for granted. Uh, but this whole obsession with the life, the private life and character and personality of the musician didn't always stand in uh, such a paramount way in the musical culture. Like I say, when uh, a singer like Bing Crosby sang a song in the 1930s, Bing was evaluated on whether he brought the song to life. You were supposed to feel the emotions in the song. Now, by the time you get to Mick Jagger, the audience there, when he sings, they're imagining what would it be like to be Mick Jagger? I mean, this is, this is a very different, this is a very different approach. And it, it gets down to a, a huge issue in this whole matter of the cool, which was, is music turning into a kind of lifestyle commodity where you're not so much buying the music, you're buying the lifestyle associated with the music. And once again, I talk to people and they assume, well, this was always the case. No, it wasn't always the case. You know, the word lifestyle didn't even exist in the English language until the early 20th century. You know, it's funny. Someone did a measure in the Chicago Tribune in 1967. During the course of an entire year, the newspaper used the word lifestyle only seven times. Five years later, they did the same measure. It's, it appears hundreds of times. Today, many newspapers have what are known as lifestyle editors. So this tells you there's some amazing transition happened in American culture in which we start to view everything in terms of its, its lifestyle. Now, music was the first lifestyle product. I mean, I, I could, it's a whole fascinating story that in my book, and I'm not going to go into it here, but you, record labels were the first businesses in the world to discover how to market lifestyles. And that's where the whole cool thing became powerful because cool was more than just a way of playing music. It was a way of living your life. And so this is the whole power of, uh, of, of cool music. It, is, it instigated this whole approach that, hey, I'm listening to this music, and it's not just me enjoying sounds. It's me making a statement of who I am. And this is why when I say there's been a, a shift from cool to hot in our culture, why it's so dangerous, why it's so scary, because... Uh, these cultural artifacts are not just external things. People internalize them and they lead their life according to the lifestyle markers uh, in the music and other aspects of the culture. But really jazz did more than any other genre to pioneer that, particularly with regard to the cool. And, and, and you describe what you call the age of the cool. And you say that early on, while there's still a struggle between the old school of music and the new school, and you sort of personify those two aspects in the persons of John Lennon and Paul McCartney, with John Lennon being the avatar of the cool, and McCartney being uh, more of a traditional songster who emotes and, and puts himself out there in, in an unironic way. And you say that for a while, that, that led to this really fruitful period, and, and you talk about the 70s in terms of you know sort of singer-songwriters who represent the older style, the openly emotional style, versus uh, the ironic hard rock style. And, and in your view, the ironists won, at least in that period. Well, there are these shifts, and it's interesting to see how they recur with such extraordinary predictability. And, it, and I'll give you an example. You know, we talked about Bing Crosby earlier, how in the early 1930s, he was coming up with an intimate, more subdued way of singing and about love and sentimental subjects. In 1932, 33, this is what everyone wanted to hear. 
But the end of that decade was known as the swing era, where really hot jazz to go. People wanted to get up and dance. So that's the 1930s. Well, the same thing happened in the 1970s. It's, it's funny. At the beginning of the 1970s, the charts are, are dominated by singer-songwriters. It's Carol King, James Taylor, Joni Mitchell. I mean, there are literally uh, hundreds of them. And, and music, once again, became very intimate. It became intimate. It was built on emotions, on personal expression. But in the second half of the 70s, you have punk rock, you have disco. People want to get up and dance. They want something more aggressive. And so you see the same shift. The same thing happened in the 1950s. In the first half of the 1950s, pop music were these mood music albums, bachelor pad albums, and novelty songs, and, and, and romantic ballads. Second half of the 1950s, the rise of rock and roll and Elvis. And so you see these cycles and uh, uh, sort of these mini cycles of, of, of cruel to hot. And, uh, and to me, it's very important because I think these tell us what might happen in the future of our own musical culture. You know, we're in sort of a, a, um, a stage now where, where songs are easy to listen to and they're well-crafted to please many people. And, and a lot of people I know think, well, this is just the end game. I mean, what could, be, what could be a better strategy as a music business than to want to please a lot of people with pleasing music? But history shows it, it never lasts. It didn't last in the 1930s. It didn't last with these mood music albums in the 50s. Uh, it, it's never lasted. So whenever you see a period like we have right now, in which there's sort of this uh, pop-oriented music that aims to please large numbers of folks, uh, you should expect something disruptive around the corner. And that's why I expect we're going to see some disruptions in our own musical culture over the next few years. And let's let's talk about Frank Sinatra one more time before we, we move into the current period. And in, in your book, you say that uh, you know, you talk about Sid Vicious and his cover of My Way. And I was really tempted to pick that as, as our fourth uh, song snippet, but I decided to go with another song that you said uh, sort of answered that. And Frank Sinatra was so ahead of his time in the 40s that he is still current in the 70s. And one of his last great hits uh, was Frank Sinatra's New York, New York. Let's hear it. Start spreading the news I'm leaving today I want to be a part of it New York, New York Now was Frank Sinatra doing New York, New York, one of his last big pop hits. What was it about that song and Frank's whole approach that, that you feel allowed him to thrive in the era of Sid Vicious and disco and heavy metal? Well, the 1970s, if you look at, at highbrow philosophical culture, there was a movement that was dominant, that came to dominance in that decade known as postmodernism and, uh, and, a, and an approach to cultural works known as deconstruction, in which you would look at these works and you would break them into little bits and pieces and examine them and, and look at their inner workings. In a way, you would, the whole goal of postmodernism is not take the surface level seriously, find the deeper level. And sometimes the deeper level in a work of art runs completely opposite to the surface level. Now, you're going to say, well, why, why are you talking about postmodernism, Chad? I asked you about Frank Sinatra. But it's relevant because Frank Sinatra was the great postmodernist singer. He deconstructed songs. He was the first person to do this, I think. When you listen to Sinatra at his best, there's something paradoxical happening in the music, and I haven't heard anyone do it as well as him. And, he, and, and let me describe it as, as follows. You do have the surface level of the song. If it's a song about falling in love, you get a sense that Sinatra's talking about his own feelings falling in love. But with Sinatra, there's always this little second level in which you see he's sort of mocking the song even while he's singing it. It's like, okay, I'm going to sing this song about falling in love, but you know I am too cool to really believe everything I'm saying here. And these two levels coexist in the Sinatra song. You know, early on, I didn't like Sinatra. And I didn't like Sinatra because I always said to myself, he's not taking these songs seriously. You know, Tony Bennett takes these songs more seriously than Sinatra. When Tony sings, 
you get more of a sense of emotional directness. And Sinatra is not playing that game. And it took me a long time to figure out, well, Sinatra is playing a different game. And it's a fascinating game. He's singing the song. He's singing it straight, but he's also making a commentary on the song at the same time. And that was perfect for the 1970s. And, and in New York, New York, I mean, it, it, you could view that song as, as Sinatra singing a song about New York and how much he loves New York. But part of this song feels a little like a pastiche or a parody, or he's sort of mocking songs about cities, too. It's hard to figure out the exact valence of it. And I think this is Sinatra's strong point. Uh, in fact, he's never been surpassed at it. The person who can sing the song and make a commentary on the song at the same time. He's not the Jacques Derrida of popular singing. <laughs> That's awesome. And and I figure that you've mentioned, um, and you talk about quite a bit in the book, and, and you know, to the untutored mind, you know, you would think somebody who doesn't know the history of pop singers in America, that Frank Sinatra and Tony Bennett were pretty similar. And yet you find Tony Bennett to be more of a pre-cool singer, and you explain his comeback in the 90s and the knots and on into today in terms of the death of the cool. Explain how Tony Bennett, Nora Jones, and others epitomize this shift. Okay, we're getting down to nuances here. And obviously there are aspects of Tony and, and Nora you could talk as representing the cool. But one of the things, and, and I think probably the best way of approaching this is to look at our culture today, which I say is a hot culture. It's hot, it's confrontational. One of the things people pride themselves on today is calling it straight saying it the way it is, not prettying it up. I'm just going to say it, you know, and, and, and you got to deal with the consequences. It may not be pretty, but I, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to sh- shoot straight. We live in a culture right now of directness. It's part of the reason why there's this obsession with authenticity. The idea is call it straight. Uh, don't dance around the issues. Now this leads to a lot of conflict, you know, conflict and, 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 and confrontation in our culture. But in music, there is this, direct way of singing, which is not stylized. It's just, I'm going to, I'm going to sing the emotion straight. And I do think Tony Bennett uh, is a great exemplar of that. And the cool, interestingly enough, does have those emotions, but they're a little more stylized. Sometimes they're diffracted. In Miles, there's always this conflict again. It's like Sinatra. He's being very emotional and sentimental, but there's also an anti-sentimental aspect of Miles. And you're trying to, as you listen to him, part of the, the, the joy of it is this emotional complexity. Is Miles aloof? I mean, he was famous as being aloof when I mean, he played with his back to the audience. He'd walk off the stage and it's, he was like almost the, the poster child of aloofness in music. Yet there was another aspect of him that was emotionally direct. And so I, when I distinguish between someone like a Tony Bennett or a Miles, it's, it's this essential element of the cool in which you have the emotional element but it's at play constantly with an element of stylization uh, that, that adds nuance and complexity and actually is probably the, the most magnetic aspect of the whole cool culture. And, you know, looking, preparing for this interview and looking back at the book with, with 10 years to, to mull it over and see how the predictions have held up. And I have to say, you know, in the Trump era, you seem pretty frighteningly prescient. But I was, I was sort of randomly going through some YouTube playlists from the past 15 years and trying to pick out who was cool and who wasn't. And, and I think that distinction that you drew and the, the way you, you nuanced it such that Billie Holiday, pre-cool, Tony Bennett, pre-cool, Nora Jones, post-cool, rather than, you know, when I went to the list, which was randomly pulled up based on what somebody on YouTube thought were, were popular songs, it was easy to say, oh, well, this person is is post-cool. And, and there are still artists today that I think pass that Mick Jagger test of do you want to be them? Like Azalea Banks' breakthrough hit from 2012, the 212. You watch that, you know, if you're a man, you're attracted to her. If you're a woman, you want to be her. But then somebody like Macklemore is definitely what I would see as a post-cool. You know, his song Thriftin', he's killing the irony. He's singing a song about picking up cheap deals at thrift stores and making fun of people who are paying, you know, $50, $100 for a T-shirt. And so are there any artists that have emerged in the past 10 years that you think are particular avatars of the post-cool? Well, I think you you see it almost everywhere, Um and the whole the whole question is trying to distinguish between uh, illusion and reality. Uh, but the the whole required illusion right now 
is sort of this frankness. I'm calling it straight. Uh, and, and whether you see this in hip hop or whether you see it in, 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 in rock, the, the whole goal is, is to have that unadorned direct communication of what's actually going on. And, you know, and I could talk about, you know, Kendrick Lamar or whatever, but this is, this is more, you can't really reduce it to a single artist. It's a cultural pose that people want now, but it creates a paradox because what people are looking for is authenticity. And when you have the whole music industry trying to commoditize authenticity, you know, you're just, you're, what you're doing is tends to destroy the very thing you're, you're, you're looking after. And so there's a certain crisis in, in music now. And it's, it's, a, it's almost a metaphysical or philosophical crisis is, is, is we want our artists to be ultra real. Um, um, but the way we approach that puts them in a situation of being commoditized in cultural constructs. So, I mean, like I said, we're now getting into very philosophical issues. The broader point, I think, is that we're living in a post-cool era in which what we're looking for is the real. And will our music provide it? That's an ongoing issue. All us music fans have to deal with day after day, week after week, month after month. Awesome. And we can do that better armed uh, for our knowledge and what to look for. Thanks to your book, The Birth and Death of the Cool. Ted Joya, it's been a real pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. the let it roll podcast on itunes spotify and facebook and check out our website at let it roll podcast.com you can now follow us on twitter at let it roll cast nate will be back next week with michael azarod to discuss our band could be your life and the 80s american punk underground let it roll is a pantheon podcast and you can listen to all the other great pantheon podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com The Birth and Death of the Cool is published by Fulcrum Publishing. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, letitrollpodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.